January 13th, uh, 2015, and this is the Fiction Old and New Book Group, and tonight we're very, very privileged to have author Allison Richmond join us to talk about uh, two of her novels, her debut novel, The Mask Harvest Sun, and her most recently published novel, which is The Garden of Letters, although you'll hear that there's actually, fortunately for us, there's actually some more books coming coming along very soon. Um, let me just give you a little information about Allison. Um, Allison Richmond grew up in Long Island, New York. When she was 15 years old, her family moved to Japan. Allison graduated from Wellesley College, and you're going to tell me if I have this right, Allison, or slightly wrong. Um, while in college, she returned to Japan and was an apprentice to a mask carver. Was that when you were in school or that is, after? Um, that, was my ju- that was my junior year abroad. So while okay. I was at Wellesley, I spent my third year in Kyoto, studying mm-hmm. okay. a mask carver. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Allison has written five novels. In, um, including her debut novel, The Mask Harvest Sun, which was published in 2000. Um, mm-hmm. The New York Times said of this novel, in her first novel, Alison Richmond offers a meticulous profile of a man struggling against his native culture, his family, and his own sense of responsibility. Her knowledge of Japanese political and artistic history is evident, adding nuance and depth to Ki- Kiyoki's sad Story of Rebellion, which I think, actually, I read the book twice, and I would say that actually sums it up very nicely. Um, she published her second novel, The Rhythm of Memory, in 2004, and her third novel, The Last Van Gogh, in 2006. Her fourth novel, The Lost Wife, was the 2012 Long Island Read selection and was cited as one of the best novels of the year by the Jewish Journal of Books. Her fifth novel, The Garden of Letters, published in 2014, was praised by Booklist as sensual in its descriptions of the Italian countryside and the allure of music. This moving story also graphically depicts the heroism and sacrifice of wartime. Also, very accurate description. Um, This month, Allison has published as an e-single, I think that's what it's called, an Mm -hmm. e-single, a splendid gift. And she also contributed a story, which I would recommend that we all download because it sounds very good. Um, um, Her story is called Going Home, and it's a recently published short story collection called Grand Central, Original Stories of Post-War Love and Reunion. Allison's five novels, as well as Grand Central, are all available on Bookshare. Allison's novels have been published in more than 10 languages. And Alice and her husband and their two children live in Long Island. And we're just thrilled that, that she's here with us this evening. So first, what I'm going to do is just ask Allison a few questions about the Mask Harvest Sun. And then Sherry's going to ask her a few questions about the Garden of Letters. And then Ron um, will switch us to the, the computer room, and you'll all have a chance to ask her a question about either book or any of her other books or make a comment or, you know, whatever you would like to do. So why don't we start with The Mask Harvest Sun. And the first thing, Allison, I wanted to ask you is, um, was Kiyoki, was he modeled on any real-life Japanese artist that went to Paris? Well, um, after I graduated from Wellesley College, I got a grant to research for Japanese artists who traveled from 
um, Japan to Paris during, you know, the Meiji Restoration when Japan was opened up to the West for the first time. And so Yoki is sort of a blended um, character inspired from their different experiences. Um, his experience of being an outsider both when he was in, was in Paris and he couldn't escape being visibly different from the French because of the way he looked. Um, mm-hmm. And then what happened when he returned to Japan, he was an outsider because of his experience and the depression that came over him, not feeling, feeling as though he was an outsider in both countries. It's really based on what my re- you know, I discovered with my research of what this experience was for these artists who went between these two countries. Um, the character, the, you know, a character, um, the, the character in The Mask Carver's Son who um, married, I know it's been the book, but the character who has Ava as his girlfriend and who, um, he, his character is based on the, the true life artist of Gujita who actually lived in, in Paris for almost his entire life, married um, a Western woman and um, actually converted to Catholicism to the point of his life and based on that particular true life artist. Oh, okay. That that's really interesting, actually. Um, one of the the many many things that I, I really loved about this novel was that there were so many different types of artists. Which I was mm-hmm. racking my brain trying to remember any novel that I read that had so many different types of artists in it. We have because mm-hmm. I'm going to mix up the names. We have the grandfather, who mm-hmm. is an actor. And we have right. the father who's a mask carver, and then we have the grandson who's a painter, and we also have the mother who's also an artist as well. Yes. Um, and, yes. I, and I just wondered, um, do you think that they all saw art in the same way, or how would you differentiate the, the, the various ways that these characters viewed art or, or thought of art, the importance of art? Well, it's a great question. I don't think they saw all of the art in the same way. And one of the themes of The Mask Carver's Son is how do different artists reconcile their different passions between them? Because, I mean, if you look at Kiyoki's father, you know, his sense of what it meant to be a mask carver was to recreate exactly the masks that were passed on from generation to generation. And by recreating them in the same way, there was no sense of originality. It was a way of showing respect to the carvers before him by doing it in the same method. When, you know, Kiyoki goes to Paris, he learns about painting and, and cultivating his own unique style and what it means to interpret something in, an, you know, in his own individual unique way, and that is different. I think the mother painting, you know, you know, means to escape. I mean, she was, you know, that was very limited in what she could achieve in her, you know, brief lifetime. So when she, when she you know, painted, it was her relationship with, the landscape was very personal. How she, how she interpreted what she was creating. So everyone is slightly different, um, mm-hmm. and I think what's interesting between Kyoki and his father is that they're both, in a way, inherently selfish. I mean, I think both of them feel that you have to give up everything for their for their craft, and that it's something yes. that the sense of personal relationship and connection. Yeah, that that's really true and and actually really sad. <laughs> when Very when I read sad. the when I read the book, yeah, it really is. 
Now, I, I, I'm still not sure the answer to this. I've been thinking about this. I, I, I read, like I said, I read your book twice, and I'm still thinking about this. Do you feel, I'll tell you what I felt, and then you'll tell me what the right answer is. I, I felt that Kiyoki was more influenced to going to Paris because he really just felt the pull of the Western art when Japan opens up its doors a little bit and, and they had more in Western influence. He just seemed to be mesmerized by this, this type of art. And I thought he went there really because of his art more than as a rebellion against his family. Do you think it was a Absolutely, combination? Yes. No, I you don't do. think it was a, no, I don't okay. think it was a combination. I think you're right. I think he went because he was, um, it was almost like he was starving and, he, and the West, you know, like looked to him like this enormous candy store of new opportunity and, and, and you know, and he was enthralled by the style that was coming in and I mean up until eighteen sixty eight Japan practiced an isolation policy. So can imagine being coming of age in a period when for the first time the doors are open to you to travel and what that means. I mean it was a very exciting time period but at the but his father is from a generation where, as I mentioned before, it was a respect for the past and of the of the old ways, and so their relationship becomes a metaphor between the old and the new generation. It's not, I mean, it's not yes. just within the two different styles of art, um, but really about what the new generation of young Japanese wanted to do and to be Westernized. Yes. Now, Kiyoki had a friendship with I hope I said this right, Nuburo. Yes, Nuburo. And okay. And I was just wondering if, if if it had become a romantic relationship, which I don't think it ever did. How? What would have been the reaction in, in the school that they attended and with their families? Would they have been accepted, or would have been no, you know a big scandal? Been, it, would, it would have been scandals. It would never have been accepted. I mean, one of the reasons why it has those undertones of that um, love between him and and Noburo is that I wanted to create a character that was completely on the outside of everything. You know, he's on the outside of what his, you know, his father expected, and he's on the outside of, of, of when he goes to Paris, of, of not blending in because he's, he's Japanese, and when he returns, he's, he's changed by his experience. In every sense of the word, Kiyoki is, is an outsider, and I wanted to, to, to create a character with, you know, who has these, this pro, these profound experiences because he can never quite fit in. Yes, that 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 actually makes sense. It makes sense. It's it's not. Um, you know, I I was I I wrote the relationship between Noboru and and um, and Shioki in a way. I, I don't know if you read Brides Head Revisited, but that sort of relation where you know that there is an attraction and there's a there's yes. a, 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 a a pull there, but it never goes into too much detail because that that wouldn't even be the point to go to that. It's really just the sense of, of how how he has a sense of longing to be connected, yet he can never really have that connection. Yes, and and you saw it at the end of the novel when he met him again, and he had brought his friend, how upsetting that was. So, yes, you definitely felt the sense of longing. Um, it was There were so many interesting, great details in this story, and one thing which I had never heard of before was when I, I'm going to miss up. Is it Ryoshi or am I close to the right name? The father. Ryusei. Ryusei. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just say father. Um, when, he, when the grandfather was considering whether he'd be a good match for the daughter, he also mm-hmm. was thinking about him being adopted into the family, which is something that yes. the father's, the, the priest who had mentored the father had talked to him about. That was so interesting to me that he took the last name of mm-hmm. the, the mother's family. Is that something that's common at that time, or is it an artistic tradition? Or um, It was something that was done when there was... Um you know, no male heir, and so in certain extraordinary circumstances, if if he wanted to continue the line, it was it was suggested, and you know, obviously the the man had to agree to do it, but you know, it definitely did happen, and it wasn't something okay. only in an artistic community; it could have happened to any in any family. Okay, um, mm-hmm. now I I was hoping that you could explain this, I guess, in a in a very simple way. I was trying to figure out how spirits are released when masks mm-hmm. are used in the, in the no theatrical production. What, what is the, the thinking with that? Well, when a mask carver for the no theater creates a mask, he really believes that he is infusing the spirit of the character when he's carving. I mean, imagine that you're in your mind when you're creating the face of the mask, you feel that you're bringing, you're infusing that would with the spirit of what the character is. Like, you're so familiar with the plays and who that character is, there's a sense that it goes from your mind through your entire body, through your hands, into the wood. And when the, when the, and if there's a very, and I describe it in the book, when the actor places the mask on their face, there's a reverence, there's a pause before they put that mask on, as if they're absorbing the breath of the character through the mask, and then the, the strings are tied, and they go on the stage, and when they chant the um, you know, the, the music of the character and the words of the character in the play, they believe it is released at that moment on the stage. So if there's a very spiritual component to no theater, and perhaps it's difficult to describe unless you've seen it, but um, there is a sense that the artist is channeling the spirit when he's creating the, the mask in his workshop. Okay. Um so I'm going to ask one more question, and then we're going to switch to Sherry. Um, now, I, I guess I, I, I was hoping that Kiyoki would just stay in, Japan, in, in France. I was so mm-hmm. upset when he decided to go home and mm-hmm. to Japan, and, and, of course, he ended up going back to France. It just felt to me like he belonged in France more than mm-hmm. he belonged in Japan. Did you consider having him remain in, in France, or do you think it was really necessary that he, that he needed to come back home? Well, I felt that it was necessary to have him come, come home because the only artist who remained in France was Fujita. All the artists that I researched, they all did come home, and when they came home, they, I don't, it, it might have been better for them to stay, but when they came, they came home, they, they did feel like outsiders in their own you know, country, and their and their artwork was not accepted when they came back home, which was really difficult. But, you know, I wanted to be historically accurate and to show this experience in the book, I and mean, that was one of my objectives, and so I felt it was necessary, but it was harder, you know, to read. I mean, it's very sad to read. It's, it's truthful of the experience of what these artists experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Are you all set, Sherry? Yeah. Hi, Allison. Thanks again for um, gracing us with your presence tonight to talk about these great books. 
Um, I want to start, I've read a, a couple of interviews with you and listened to a couple, and you have a nice story about what inspired you to write Garden of Letters. I'm wondering if you could share that with us. Yes, um, absolutely. I was at a dinner party talking um, with someone who um, shared with me the story of how their father had, um, right before the Nazis came into Hungary, his, his, this person's grandfather had bought forged papers for her father to escape from Hungary, hoping to get him from through Italy into Malta. And when he arrived in, in the port of Portofino with his forged papers, the Germans were scrutinizing everyone's papers so carefully, he was sure he was going to be arrested on the spot. And all of a sudden, out of the crowd, a big barrel-chested Italian man cried, Cousin, cousin, I've been waiting for you all week. Thank heavens you've come. He embraced my friend's father, took him back to his home on the cliffs of Portofino. And when my friend's father said to him, You realize I'm not your cousin. Why did you save me? This man replied, I, well, I come to the port every few months. I try and save the person who looks the most afraid. So when I heard that story, I was sort of fascinated how two people's lives could intersect in one moment in time, one person who is in desperate need of shelter and another person who recognizes that fear without either of them exchanging a single word between them. And one of the themes of the, of the Garden of Letters, you know, is how do we communicate with the outside use of words? I mean, you have Elodie who, who, who sends coded messages through her music. She communicates through her music playing even before the war. It's an extension of her body. Um, she, you know, rings out the song of the cello through um, her music playing, and it's another form of communication. Um, and so I didn't want, you know, The Lost Wife, the novel that preceded The Garden of Letters, was a Holocaust novel. And I didn't want to do another character of a, you know, a, a Jewish character who's fleeing the Nazis. So I really wanted to create the character of Elodie at the port, who is in need of shelter, who is someone who, who shows another side of World War II. I mean, she's not Jewish, but she is a music student who is brought into the resistance because of, um, you know, her friend and what she sees happen to her father, and she's able to use her musical skills to do good and to, um, and to try and oppose what she sees, you know, with the tyranny around her. So that's really what inspired the book, the early seeds for the novel. That's so fascinating that that really happened. That just gives me chills just hearing about it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you read so much about the French resistance. This is the first book I can recall reading about the Italian resistance. Was it huge in Italy? Well, um, it wasn't huge. It certainly wasn't like the French resistance, but it did exist. It, was, it really started up north in, in Verona and Mantua, that area. Um, but it, it did expand as the, as the war, you know, started taking, you know, eight, October 18, eight, oh, sorry, October 1943 is really when the Germans came into Italy, and that's when the resistance started really becoming far more active. But it's, it's, it's not on the same level as the French resistance, no. Uh-huh. That's probably why we hear more about the French resistance, I guess. It was nice to read about something different. And the level of mm-hmm. detail, like you mentioned black shirts, and you always hear of brown mm-hmm. shirts. I, right. I, I mean, that must have been something you found in your research. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, I mean, so many Americans don't know about fascism and also how fascism was, was, was so much part of the Italian life you know, before 
you know, Hitler even came to power. I mean, Mussolini was in power for some time before Hitler came to power, and the Italians were, uh-huh. you know, in the beginning, they embraced Mussolini. They thought he brought order and communified Italy, but then, the, you know, he became this, you know, megalomaniac and, and, and started, you know, as I described what happens with Ethiopia, he wants to expand, you know, far outside of Italy, you know, he wants to take over uh-huh. so many other colonies, and and anyone who opposed that, what happened to them, and, and the fear that that um, brought about, and then what happened, obviously, when he aligned with, with Hitler, what happened with that, and you know, he, originally he said that the Jewish community was safe within Italy, and then he, he betrayed them, so there's... Uh-huh. there's there's a, I don't feel in America we learn so much about an Italian history as we do about what happened in you know Austria and Germany and Poland in World War II. Exactly. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, you uh, had in the book the example of the cello and music hiding coded messages. Were there? Um, did you add that, or were there real examples of music? And was there were there examples of other types of art where they stuck code in there? Well, it was certainly something that was done. You mentioned the French resistance. Josephine Baker was actually a secret agent for the Italian resistance and sent coded messages through her sheet music. It was written in invisible ink, and at the end of her performance, she would give it to someone, another person who was doing the mission, and they would be able to reveal the code after, you know, after they washed it with the solution that revealed the invisible ink. There were different mm-hmm. examples of things being written in, you know, backwards into musical scores, I knew right away that I wanted to treat Elodie as a cellist because I love the cello. I think, you know, if I could have played any instrument in my youth, it would have been the cello. And so when I started interviewing cellists, I learned about the cadenza and how there was a space in certain, you know, cello concertos to interpret the musical score in your own way. And that left a sort of pocket that I could have had a code woven into. So that's imagined from my part of using the cadenza. But certainly musicians mm-hmm. were involved in the resistance, as were booksellers, which I write about in the book. That's all true, um, how you know, they would write you know, one letter every 75 you know, pages or every 25 pages, and you had to sort of put together the code that way, or that they stored pistols in the back of books, you know, hollowed-out books. It's all true. It's a very creative That's way to, you know, yeah. communicate and to get the job done. Well, plus, you know, you're adding that stuff with the cello. You apparently would have made a good spy. I was wondering when you wrote the book, um, did you already know that Angelo and Elodie would end up together and you just needed to create their backstories? How did you plan that out? Um. I did. I mean, whenever I write any of my novels, I always know the beginning and the end. I just don't know the between. I don't know the journey in between. So, um, but I do know the finish line. I didn't know the Garden of Letters was going to happen, though. So that was something that happened midway through the book when I was imagining what would Dahlia have done with all these letters that she was receiving from Lisa, not Lisa, I'm sorry, um, from Angelo. And I just, in my mind's eye, started seeing her taking them and creating something in the room because I thought it would be so beautiful that she could create a room in which she was surrounded by his words of love. Once I got to the part of the, you know, bringing Elodie and Angelo together, I thought to myself, well, what is she going to do with the room now? I mean, she can't go back. I mean, she can't sleep under another person's love letters. And then when I thought about it, I thought, well, really the, what one of the themes of the story is is the layering of the different loves and how you have to embrace the other person's story, and each of them has this very profound love story that preceded them, which 
you know, is very different than the new love story that's burgeoning between the two of them. And so this incorporation of building from that, not whitewashing over that, becomes sort of this, you know, metaphor for the, the book in a, in a larger way. Yeah, considering everything that was going on, sleeping under another man's uh, a love letters <laughs> to another woman is kind of minor in comparison. Yeah, that's true. To, uh, all that's these. true. <laughs> um, how did you decide, like, when to transition? I always find it fascinating when authors transition between um, different stories and different time periods. Is there, like, do you just, like, write and then you kind of feel a natural break, or do you decide yeah, ahead of time, yeah, I'm going to tell this much? No. I don't do an outline, so it's really an organic process for me. It's almost like when I need to take a different breath, you know, a breath of air in a different direction, then I move in a different way. So it just happens, mm-hmm. like, naturally. It's that sort of natural rhythm of writing the story. Okay, well, yeah, it certainly did not seem like it was jumping at all. It was very, the transitions were very smooth. Um, that runs the gamut of my questions. I am going to have Ron switch us to the room now and see if we have some people um, from the group here that want to ask some questions. So hold on, and you should hear um, Ron do that, and you'll hear people ask a question, and then, like Michelle said, just wait a uh, give it a okay. second or two. And okay. Okay, we're switching to... I'm going to just check and make sure, because some people I know are having microphone trouble, so I'll check and see if there's anything written, but so far I don't see anything. Okay. Yeah, I don't see anybody with their hand up yet, but we'll go back to the chat room and see if anybody has a question. This is not so much of a question as a statement. Uh, I was really not surprised to find that... uh, our author spent so much time in Japan because it's, it sounded so Japanese to me, the, just the style of the writing and, and everything. And I thought how small uh, the, the Japanese culture locked people into little bitty boxes. And I was thinking about his uh, uh, grandmother who, when she found that her daughter was an artist and out painting the mountain that she mentioned to her husband that oh if she had only been born a man and then he gets so angry with her and says oh what do you say to that me if she was a man then she would have been a, a what a dancer like me in other words they were all locked in and and it was such a small little culture. No wonder he felt so trapped when he tried to escape from it. I'm Ron, do you, yeah, me, me the Ron, do you, did you hear that? Because we had a really hard time hearing it. I don't know if you could repeat any of it. So, Oh, I heard, I heard it. Did you, oh, did you? Could I you hear it, Allison? No, I couldn't. It just was very broken up. I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't it. either. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, Ladon was saying how small the culture in Japan seemed to him. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, man, I, I can't really repeat all the whole question verbatim either. It wasn't a question so much as a compliment about how well written it was and how he could tell that you were, spent some time in Japan. And Ladon has his hand up again, so let's let him have another try here. Okay. I was saying how small a box that Japanese culture locked 
people in. And uh, example was when his grandmother found that his mother was an artist, that she said to her husband, Oh, if she had only been born a man, and he gets angry with her and says, uh, if, if he had been born a man, he would have been a ba- dancer like me. And she went away, oh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'll never say that again. At this point in, in Japanese history, even, even, even now there's limitations put on women, but in this time period in particular, there was a sense of... Um, limitations put on women and if they were born a man very much like a boy like Kiyoki that you would have to follow in your father's footsteps and what they wanted you to do so Kiyoki really says something very brave and unusual and by taking steps to go to another country and and not to follow in the footsteps of you know his father before him Can we ask questions about either book, or is this just about the Mask Harbor Sun right now? Bluntly, either whichever book or or any of her books. It's interesting. You have two totally different writing. Um, I don't know if it's styles, but once is one is about. Um, you know, Elodie and the Italian resistance, and the other one is about Japan. How did you get into each mode of writing, if that makes sense? Allison, that doesn't look like he's... Okay, now he's connected. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was saying it makes perfect sense, your question, because every book I've written takes place in a different country. Uh, I always travel to the country, and... I feel each country has its own rhythm of how it expresses itself, you know, through language, um, how they interact with each other, the culture. So you couldn't, it's an interesting book club discussion to compare and contrast a book in Japan and a book in Italy, because in Italy, the human connection within the family is celebrated, whereas the human connection in Japan is really repressed and there's so much silence between people and how do you interpret that silence because you can't speak directly and things are always so uncomfortable. Um, so, but I had to maintain the integrity of each culture and, 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 and so I guess the voice, I channel the voice of characters that I feel are, um, you know, not just historically accurate but emotionally authentic as well that, you know, that are, that are really reflective of the way people would have been at that time period in that particular country. Well, that's a good segue, actually. Ginny wrote a question, so I'm just going to read it. Um, mm-hmm. She said that she really enjoys your use of language, and she wondered if you enjoy writing poetry, and also, do you speak any Japanese? I do speak Japanese. Um, at one point, I was fluent in Japanese. In college, I was a double major in art history and Japanese study. Oh, should I wait it? I didn't wait five seconds. Oh, that's okay. Um, it's- okay. <laughs> so I, I in, and that I, I, so I do speak Japanese. I, I think her question is is very uh, sensitive and smart because I actually. I imagined the Mass Carver's Son when I was writing it to be written like a long poem. 
You know, there's a lot of alliteration in it. I, I, I always, in all of my books, I always read the sentences out loud to hear how they sound because I love language. I love the cadence of the words. And I do like this natural undulating rhythm that I feel my stories have when you're reading them out loud. Um, so there, I, I aspire for them to be poetic. So I'm happy that she enjoyed the language. Okay, any other questions, Ron? It doesn't look like it. Anybody else have any questions about either book? Okay, uh, why don't we see if she has a... Mary Ellen, yeah, I think she's going to try. I just uh, want to comment that I read your uh, The Garden of Letters through Audible and heard the beautiful cello and then your lovely interview at the end, and I just want to congratulate you on this. Oh, well, thank you very much. I was so honored that um, Emma Schmiedeke was able to play some of the music at the end of the book. It was very special. She's a beautiful cellist, and um, it, was, it was a wonderful way to sort of add a, a, something very unique to the audio version of the book. I think Leela is trying to ask a question. Actually, it's not a question. I'm going to second what Mary Ellen just said. Your Garden of, Los, of Le- Letters was I have to say that has to be my book of 2014 2015 because that I that I won't forget that book you were so descriptive you're so oh my gosh it was just it I was caught up in the writing in the um person who did the audible narration was great as well and I think a narrator really makes a book as or breaks it and this was a great I mean you could really picture the lem the you know the lemons or the flowers or that you were so descriptive oh well thank you so so much I you know with the garden of letters it was the first time for me as an author that they let me uh, select the voice of who would be narrating the the novel, and so I picked Elizabeth Foster, and I thought she just had such a a loveliness about her voice, such an elegance, and a, and, a, and and she just seemed so perfect for for reading it that I was I was so pleased. So I'm so happy that you enjoyed it as well. Now we have a question from Don, and also another question from Ginny. Ginny wanted to know if you have any formal training in writing, and did your writing grow out of your visual arts? And, Dawn, you just have a cue. Do you want to write out the question, or do you want to try to use the mic? So why don't, why don't we do Janie's question? She wants to know if you have any formal training in writing, and did your writing grow out of your visual arts? I do not have any formal training as a writer. Uh, I, I, I have training as an artist. My writing comes from me um, trying to transmit what I see visually in my mind to, to the written word. And um, I really credit my mother, which we discussed early on, in teaching me to just imagine what everything looks like. And I just try and tell the story from that visual perspective. And, and then from the acoustic, you know, element of how this language sounds, the rhythm of the language is, you know, what propels me. So it's, 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 I, I think a lot of writers who are formally trained also think of it in, 
from purely a narrative perspective, whereas I'm seeing it in a more artistic perspective, I think. Um, and Can I, you I tell us a little bit about your mother? Because I don't know if everybody knows about your mother is, is a painter and a little I, bit about, about her. Mm-hmm. Well, my mother is, you know, she doesn't paint now. Um, my mother was an abstract painter, and she taught me from a very early age to look at the world through an artistic lens, that everything has its own color and texture. She taught me about negative and positive space. Um, One of the reasons why I like to shift perspective in my books is because my mother told me at a very early age, you know, when you look at a piece of sculpture, to walk around that piece of sculpture, to look at all the different points of view. You know, when you look at a painting, to look up close, and then to take steps away and to see how it changes. Um, She also, you know, taught me how every season has its own color and, and, and has a certain textures reflective of that. And I try and bring that to life when I'm, when I'm, when I'm writing my, my novel. So she was extremely influential in, in, in how I see the world. Let's see if... I, I don't know you, whether you wanted me to talk next or not, but I mostly had a comment. I... What you just said probably expresses that. How I really enjoyed the uh, Mascar Woodcarver's book. Uh, the lyric quality of it was just incredible. I, I really read the whole thing. I'm only halfway through the uh, Garden of Letters, which uh, you're right about the description of the scene and the characters is, is so so great. Uh, it kept me in suspense. I've only got where she delivered her first message. So, but I thought sure she was going to get caught. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy that you're enjoying the book so much. You have a huge smile on my face. So, thank you, Don. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we let's see if we have anybody else, and if not, we can have you tell us about your next book. But let's see if yeah, anybody well, else have any has- questions about. Several books to tell us about. So, <laughs> right. right. Let's see if anybody has any questions about these two books or any of the other books of Allison's that you may have read. Uh, this is Jill, and I'd like to comment on The Lost Wife. I read this after I had read The Garden of Letters and before I read The Mask of Her Son, so I've read all three of them. And I must say, um, The Lost Wife absolutely captivated isn't the word I, I was so drawn in uh, particularly in the time that they were really in the concentration camp and what drew me in especially was how much they were willing to sacrifice for each other and for the children especially the children when it was so important for them to have the children have the artistic training that was so important to that Jewish community and then going along with that the the people that were trying to to get the message out and hiding things Uh, here again the lyric quality was wonderful and I have to tell you um, I know you knew what you were talking about and I was in tears so thank you so much oh my pleasure thank you thank you so much So, Michelle, would you like me to talk about this, give them a little description of what I'm, my next book that I'm working on? Is that what you would I like? Would love okay. if, I would love if you would, actually. That would be great. Okay. okay. 
So my next book is about an apartment that was discovered in 2010 in Paris that had been closed for 70 years. And when it was opened, the heirs found a a painting that was done by the 19th century uh, portrait painter Giovanni Baldini. And it was of the original owner of the apartment, a woman named Martha de Florian, who was a courtesan. Her granddaughter inherited the apartment, and in 1940, she closed it never to return to it. So I, the question that propelled this book was, you know, who was Martha de Florian? How did she become the muse for Giovanni Boldini, that he created this painting? And why did her granddaughter in 1940 close the apartment never to return to it, but yet paid the maintenance for 70 years? So that wow. book comes out in 2016. Oh, that sounds great. And you're working you on... Do you have a working title? Um, I have, the working title is The Painted Dove. Okay, great. We'll have to watch for that. Did you travel to Paris to do research I on that book? Did. I did. I traveled. You know, actually, I turned in the Garden of Letters to the publisher, and a week later, I was on a you know a, a plane to Paris to start researching this book. You know, so I'm I was hoping to go to Paris again in the summer, and now I've just been hesitating to book my plane tickets. So we'll see. Yes. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I can see why. <laughs> How did you get involved with um, writing a short story for the Grand Central Collection? Is that something that you'd like to do in the future, is, is do a book of short stories? It was, it was a lot of fun. I was just invited by one of the, you know, the women who was another author who had the idea. She, she selected 10. You had to be a best-selling historical author. That's how I guess she, she made her selection. And so... They wrote, you know, she wrote to me and asked me if I would want to create a story of a character who was traveling through Grand Central um, on a particular day right after World War II. And I had sort of carte blanche to create any sort of character. It was wonderful. And then all these characters intertwine within the anthology. So I created this character of this violinist who plays every day at Grand Central and sees this beautiful woman pass by him. And to get her attention, he starts playing different songs trying to get her to, to pause and to listen to him. And you learn the backstory of how he came to America and how she came, and eventually they're, you know, they intertwined. Uh, did you say that all the stories in the Grand Sasha collection, the characters intertwine with each other? Or they just... do. They, they oh, do wow. in the sense that one character will hear another character. or They, they, okay. they all kind of come to yeah, They all intertwine in some small way, I guess. Oh, how interesting. Oh, that's really nice. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I know you had... We, we really have to thank Allison because this is not her first event of the evening. This is actually her second event yeah, of the evening. She had, <laughs> yeah, she had, she had a very well, I had one more long... question, too. Um, if, uh, if you don't mind, you said you were... Um, this book about the Paris was mm-hmm. finished and, and with the publisher, but you have started yet another one. Can you tell us about that one, or is it too early? The, the one in Paris isn't finished. I just I have to turn it in in September, this coming September. Ah. So it has to be done by this September, and then it comes out next September. So this is what I'm, the Paris okay. apartment is, the Paris book is what I'm working on now. Uh, okay, okay. Oh, I'm sorry, Michelle, I think I interrupted you. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I was just going to ask if there were any more questions, and if not, we were going to thank Allison, because I'm sure she's probably very tired, and it's very cold here as well, so 
I'm sure looking forward to getting back home and 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 because it's it's freezing outside. Um, does anybody have any? I think Leela maybe has a final question. Let's see. I just wanted to say thank you, Allison, for uh, coming on tonight. I admire you. <laughs> it's your second. Oh my goodness! I hope you. Uh, have a great new year and keep writing. I'll keep reading. Oh, well, thank you so much for all of your support. It's wonderful to know that you all are listening to my stories, and I appreciate your support so much. Well, on, on behalf of our book group, we just want to thank you so much for, for joining us this evening, Allison, and it's really, it's it's such a privilege to have you here, and you write beautiful, wonderful stories, and we're so fortunate that, that we are able to, to, to hear your stories, and, and we're happy that you keep writing. So just, just keep writing, and thank you really for joining us. It's, it's really been an honor and a privilege having you. Well, and we'll definitely you, be watching for your next book. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Everyone get home safely and, and stay warm, okay? Thank you. You too. Okay. 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 Bye-bye. Good night. Good night. Bye. Bye. Okay, Ron, I'm, I'm going to hang up and go back to the computer room, and we'll announce our next book. Okay. I'm back in here now. Our next book will be... This is extremely popular, so we decided to do this, All the Light We Cannot See, um, by uh, Anthony Doerr, D-O-E-R-R, and the DB number is uh, 79182. Hey, Sherry and Michelle, I just want to say thanks to you both and Ron and Bob and everybody who kind of produced it and helped it along, and you guys did a good job. Good questions. What was the name of the book, please? Sorry, I think I, I let up on the control key too soon. It's the uh, very popular book, All the Light We Cannot See, by Anthony Doerr, and the DB number is 79182, and I put it up in the chat window, and Doerr is D-O-E-R-R. Anthony is his first name, and that will be on February 10th. And I also wanted to thank Ron. I appreciate the work he does in making this go smooth. Well, I'm so glad that you're reading this book next because um, I've been reading it off and on. And um, it is a fascinating read uh, because it does have a blind girl in it as one of the characters, and that's always interesting. And... um, so um, I'm sorry, I did not read this author's books. I just have been just flooded with stuff that I've had to do. But um, I will read this, and I'll be here next month. Well, thanks, everybody, for all your questions. That really helps things move along. I appreciate that. How old is she, Sherry? She sounds really young. She does sound really young. Do you know, Michelle? I don't really don't know how old she is. I don't know. I don't see Michelle on here anymore. Uh, I'm not sure, Layla. I can't remember. Usually, Michelle says when when the authors are born, and she probably did, but I can't remember. I was just paying attention to the college and then Japan and New York and stuff, and I can't remember. But whoa, she sounds really young. Yeah, she does. But she's such a good writer. 
Uh, looking at Wikipedia, it doesn't really give a, a, a starting date, but she graduated from Wellesley in 1994. So uh, 20, 20 some years before that, she was born. That gives you some clue. Yeah, so she must be late 30s at the youngest, probably early 40s. Huh, that's interesting. Is Jill still on here? Because I didn't see Jill listed at all. I was really happy to hear her pop up, but I didn't see her listed. Maybe she was on the phone bridge. I'm not sure. Well, I enjoyed it. Good night. I enjoyed it. I've got my mic wrong. Thanks. Well, thanks, Don. And uh, thanks, everybody. I'm going to call it a night, too. So we'll uh, see you guys in other book clubs and uh, here next month.